Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Confessing Animals podcast. I am your host, Jen Harris. And I am Vanessa Arico. And today we are interviewing Courtney Faye Taylor on the subject of redemption. Courtney Faye Taylor, she, her, hers, is the winner of the 92Y Discovery slash Boston Review Poetry Prize and an Academy of American Poets Prize. Her work has featured in Poetry Magazine, The Nation, Plowshares, The New Republic, Kenyon Review, Best Poets 2020, and elsewhere. Courtney is a graduate of the University of Michigan Helen Zell Writers Program and is the poetry editor of Slice Magazine. She is a May Fellow and a Charlotte Street Foundation resident where she is working on her debut collection of poetry. You can check out CourtneyFayTaylor.com, Instagram and Twitter at The Court Case. And we are so excited to have Courtney on today. We hope that you all just love and enjoy everything that she provides to this podcast. And ugh, what an interview. Um, uh, this is my fangirl interview, by the way. Um, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Courtney's as a poet and as an editor. She helped edit my very first manuscript. Um, so this is a big deal for me and um, just really honored to have her on the podcast. She is our first guest outside of WWKC. So I'm really excited to introduce all of you to a new voice. Absolutely. Thanks for thanks for being a fangirl and for helping us branch out now. We're we're inviting people outside of the clubhouse. And I mean, you've talked about Courtney at great extent because in outside of this interview because she she did give you such tremendous critique on your manuscript and you described it as as truly helpful edits, which I think um, is a pretty rare thing to happen in the poetry world. You know? Yeah, especially as my first experience working with an editor, like making comments on my poems, I was like really unsure what the process was going to be like, but I couldn't have asked for anything better. Wonderful. Well, I'm super glad that you invited her on today. And uh, y'all, please buckle up and listen in because we are going to get started with our interview with Courtney Faye Taylor. Let's do it. So far, my sentence as a Black woman has been hard to hone, homed in sore white pith. Put graciously, Black womanhood has been a limb that's fallen asleep beneath me, paddy wagon with spinal cords and Baltimore's traffic up ahead. This whole color was a mistake, a leak in the ceiling whorehouse, a confused ass whooping, 
You see the baby in the blinds, the eager run in nylons, a public school lisp making room for the velour of her name. I was one of them in grade school. It seemed my whole class had fallen asleep in front of a microwave. I drew faces on my galas, then ate them off. God, to me, was my distantly gentle Aunt Notre, brilliant completely, Virginia Slims and Red Sticks, the shade on her side of Brewster slouching the coolish way a suburb deserves. Sunday, she was an usher with one breast. I sat between her knees, then crept to Mom and Pop's where bells above doors snitched to mention my entrance, but I told them bells. I was toys to be bothered. I had made such toyish mistakes. In any black sentence, you'd love nothing more than to have made no mistakes. I'm so excited that you started with this one um, because I I have a question specifically <laughs> about um, the end of this poem. Um, so the last two words, no mistake, they are spaced off. Um, they're kind of separate from the rest of the poem. And I was wondering, are those two words, the no mistake, are they to distance themselves from the rest of the poem or the words or the idea, or is it just like a visual squaring off of the poem or what is the space representing? That's a great question. I think that when I revise poems, I start to read them out loud. And so I noticed that every time I got to the end of that poem, no mistake was preceded by this pause. So that might've been it. Um, I think now that you're making me think about it, cause I'm like, Oh wow. Sometimes I just do so. But um, I think that this poem exists in a manuscript um, that talks about now, I think, you know, very different versions of the mistakes we can make as a culture of, you know, forgetting the lives of black women and girls, the mistakes we make and, and who we point fingers at um, in our conflicts. And so this poem is right now like the first poem in the, the manuscript. So it's this introduction to um, what I'm going to be talking about. I also do think that form wise, it kind of does square the poem off a little bit. So it might have been a visual decision there. Um, yeah, that was a great question. This poem was published uh, on the New Republic uh, website, and um, you said it's at the beginning of a manuscript. So can you tell us about this manuscript. What are you working on? Yes. So the title is Concentrate. So that's been the title for as long as really I've been working on it. And so some of my friends are like, that's not the title. That's not the title. So I'm like, uh, but I feel like it's my title. So I'm going to claim it. So it's it's titled Concentrate. And I am talking about particularly the death of Latasha Harlins. And she was an African-American girl living in South, South Central Los Angeles. And in 1991, she was shot and killed in a convenience store by a Korean-American woman named Suja Du. And her murder, along with the Rodney King beating service, catalyst for the 92 LA riots or the LA uprising. But a lot of people remember Rodney King and not Latasha Harlins. And so I'm interested in kind of that forgotten narrative. And when I was thinking about redemption specifically, I was thinking about, you know, a second chance. So giving this narrative a second chance to be examined. Um, 
perhaps giving us like as a culture, a second chance to put a spotlight and acknowledgement on this scenario. Um, but beyond just um, Latasha Harlins, I'm also interested in the relationship between African-American communities and Asian-American communities. I think there's this stereotypical idea that there's a lot of tension, a lot of distrust, and, and there's truth to that in history and today, but there's also a lot of truth to unity and alliance building and solidarity historically and contemporarily. And so I want to talk about those things and then specifically talk about how white supremacy is the catalyst for any tension between us. Um, and I think part of shining that light is, is showing how black women and Asian women are survivors of various forms of systemic violence. And so kind of go into that. So it's, it's kind of this, um, collage of ideas. They're all related, but they're kind of in the manuscript. I don't really have poem titles. So everything kind of just flows back and forth. Um, and I think concentrate as a title is somewhat of a, a request for the reader to concentrate on wherever I'm going, like in the book, cause it's kind of, um, collage in that way. Um, but also concentrate on the, the narratives that I'm trying to bring light to the dynamics I'm trying to bring light to and, and kind of change our perspective after leaving the manuscript. Concentrate is such a powerful title. First of all, if you know that's the title of your book, claim it. I was thinking about the nuance of Concentrate, especially because um, I don't know if you've seen on Netflix, A Love Song for Latasha. Have you seen yeah. that short? It's such an extraordinary piece yeah. of work, right? Yeah. Um, concentrate is the distilled fullness of of something without being watered down right yeah. so to to bring, to ask people to pay the most attention to the density of your work i think is a bold move and especially starting with with so far as a poem just i mean wow <laughs> yeah and i i'm glad you brought that up because so in the details of the story is latasha harlins is buying orange juice right when she and there's this dispute over orange juice that you know, Suja believes she's not paying for it. And then that, that violence occurs. So concentrate even in that form. So I'm just really interested in that word, both when you talk about focus, when you talk about kind of like the, the distilled, you think about orange juice from concentrate. So all of these manifestations of that word, I try to kind of put into the manuscript. That's exactly where my mind first went when you said concentrate was the frozen concentrate orange juice that you add the water to. And it's thinking like how much of these stories get diluted over time, everything that's thrown in the mix that therefore um, kind of takes the focus away from like what actually happened. And also such a strong poem to introduce this body of work when when you were saying um, how white supremacy is um, kind of like in the middle of um, when you're exploring, you know, um, the black women and the Asian women, right? And then this like kind of white supremacy that's in the middle, I just immediately thought of 
the space, that white space between the poem and no mistake is like the isolation that is the insertion of of that whiteness. Because like when I think of whiteness, I think of isolation. And now this no mistake at the end has been isolated from the rest of the poem. But it's also because that concentrated poem is now uh, watered down because something has been inserted in it and it couldn't, um, it's getting murkier now. Yeah, I love that. See, that was, that was great because I didn't think about that. But there is a lot of white space in the manuscript. Like, I really love when there's just, like, a few words on a page. And so, like, I know, like, I feel like maybe once it gets published, there's, like, a bunch of, like, pages with just, like, a couple words on it. But there is something so powerful about the way that a white, white space in a poem makes you kind of focus on, on what's there. But even the commentary that white space has in a project like this. Yeah, I agree. You also just published a recent poem. Um, it's a visual poem called Light Attire. It's in Poetry Magazine's May issue. Um, so was this your first time incorporating visuals into your poetry? Or what do you feel is different about this piece? Like how did the images lend themselves to telling the story? Or where did this idea come from instead of just it being text? And if you want to kind of tell the listeners like what this poem is about or, you know, where it came from. Yeah. So um, Light Attire, um, when I was creating it, I looked up a bunch of missing persons flyers and um, texts from the FBI's most wanted list. So, you know, Black women and girls that were missing and then Black women and girls that um, the state was after. So um, looking at the photos, the descriptions of what they were wearing, their bodies, their job descriptions, um, and just an examination of how the authorities describe these black women and girls. And so that was of interest to me, especially as I was thinking of Latasha Harlins. And so the poem, I'm basically cutting out these faces, um, these descriptions, and I'm melding them together. So one woman's nose might be on another woman's face. Um, And it's part of how we're forgotten and we're kind of all pushed together. Um, And I think about that in just regular day-to-day life, like me being called by another Black girl's name. Just like this very, the ease in which we are forgotten that quickly. Um, so something as small and 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 kind of um, personal as a microaggression to something as, as big as a literal body being forgotten. Um, this somewhat relates, but uh, a few years after Latasha Harlins was killed and buried, um, the cemetery actually dug up her gravesite and other gravesites to put them in a mass grave to make room for more bodies. So again, like that erasure, um, the way that our remains and um, our histories, our stories are just pushed to the side. And so I just thought about these missing black women and girls um, and, and how they're kind of all pushed together in our minds and forgotten. I think also the descriptions were, were interesting. There was one woman I came across and the flyer was really, um, focusing on her job and, and what she did. So something like drug user. Um, so those sorts of tags that are, that are put on us, like, why does that necessarily need to be on a 
flyer for a, a missing person or a person that you're looking for. So I, I found those documents really interesting. And so the visual poem is a collage of those um, found um, texts. And a lot of times I'm cutting off the words, ending things, you know, and doing an erasure of the language as well. So I think on the second page of that poem, I have a line at the bottom that says something was last seen wearing light. And so in the original text, it was something like was last seen wearing light blue pants, something like that. Um, but when I've revisited that line, I think I come to new meanings about maybe why that stood out to me, why that particular erasure stood out to me. Um, one thing I thought about was when someone I feel like goes missing or dies or leaves your life, that last time you saw them, I think we kind of revisit that moment and there's a certain light to it. There's like a certain um, specialness or, that we hold to that last moment. So last scene wearing light, some of the most valuable things, the most valuable people in our lives, when we think back to those last moments, we kind of put light into it or, or we see the light that was there that we might not have thought about before. I think this poem is so I've looked at this poem multiple times since we like set up this interview with you because the, the striking nature of, I mean, the, the pain of this subject matter and being able to blend all of these images together and say like, this is how we're treated. This is how we're perceived as a singular being rather than individuals with autonomy and importance and families and, and lives to, that were drastically interrupted and, you know, potentially ended We, you know, depend, yeah. I mean, the likelihood of somebody going missing for an extended period of time and returning back alive is next to none, you know, but there's yeah. this, there's this tenderness in this poem where, um, you know, you right above the light line, no clothing was located in the area, was last seen wearing light. So it's almost like you are offering a sort of eulogy to these women when I read it. And then the, the very ending line is should be considered. And so the broadcast of your intentionality in this poem is tremendous. It's, it's saying like, we are, do you see us, yeah. you know? And, and I, I felt so moved by the way that you delivered it. Like, I, I think the medium was, uh, was incredibly, is incredibly powerful because I, I looked at this differently. I looked at this from a, I feel like I looked at it from a perspective that I would look at any flyers of missing women, but I felt the intentionality behind your purpose in creating it this way. Yeah. Thank you. I think that last line should be considered the original line was should be considered armed and dangerous, something to that um, extent. And so that should be considered carries out throughout the manuscript. It, it comes up in other poems, just, just that phrase um, and so I do think that is the thesis of what I'm working on is to consider, to concentrate, like just to, to think and, and meditate on these ideas and these histories. And simply like these women should be considered, like you should consider them. And yeah. and you describe in the notes on the poem um, that they're violently forgotten. And I think like this poem couldn't exist in any other way. Like the way um, with the erasure and with the cut up method, um, 
that's almost like a form of violence too, because it almost made me think of like how, um, the bodies being cut up, right? And it's like, and, and how you were talking about, a, you know, one black woman can be mistaken for another black woman and just like the composite of everybody and how they were all forgotten and how they weren't considered and how even after death, the violence is still being enacted. Yeah, yeah. I think that the method definitely is part of the the message of the piece. Um, I remember... Yeah, and that's exactly how it came about. I printed them off. They were all found online. I printed them off on computer paper and I sat down and kind of just cut out pieces of hair. I think like one of my favorite parts of the poem, I forget which page it's on, there's like a child's pigtail on a on a woman's head. Um, and so, uh, yeah, just the way that all of, all of us um, as Black women are, put together and Jen, like you said, like this one being, this one being that's feared, um, that's forgotten. And I do think that forgetting is a, a form of violence. And so that's why it was really important for me to put violently sought after and violently forgotten um, in that note. Do, do you feel like revenge and redemption has played a role um, in, in these poems, in your poetry, in your thought process, constructing, you know, this manuscript you're working on or anything that's come before? Yeah, I think that um, with us, when you're talking about riots or uprising, I think people always think of um, revenge. Like it's an act of revenge on the system, a revenge um, against like violence. I, so I think that that's something that I also wanted to question and, and flip into more of something of a redemption, like of a second chance. Um, I think, but yes, this podcast definitely made me think more about, about those topics. And I don't know why, but I wanted to pick redemption because I, I felt that there, it was kind of, it's almost too easy to say that like riots and um, racism and, and us acting to remedy it is a, a revenge um, because I think revenge, I think the connotation there is it has some spite to it or some anger um, underneath it, which I think is also um, a legitimate way that people see the relationship between black and Asian American people. Like they see like that tension and that, um, that sort of power dynamic that can exist in certain um inner city communities of, you know, okay, Asian people own the hair stores. And so like, there's this feeling of, um, feeling of kind of powerlessness or upsetness or anger towards from, from, from black communities, um, to seeing that. But I think that for me, I'm really, again, going back to that white space, going back to changing how we point the finger at each other and instead acknowledging that we've always been in community with each other. Like we've all, there have always been alliances between these two communities and solidarity um, and redeeming that story, like giving that story a second chance because that story is so forgotten um, and, er and erased. So I think 
redemption is kind of like taking these narratives that are seen as revenge and like giving them a second chance for us to look at them in a way where they are underneath it all, you know, a pain and a heartache instead of something that's venomous, I guess. Honestly, in the first two episodes, like we, Vanessa took revenge, I took redemption. And I think it's, it's relevant in a million, you know, microscopic ways. Um, but revenge led us into the conversation of justice and redemption was in the, we expanded into this notion of like, redemption is so deeply personal as much as it is a collective act. And so, you know, we, we see examples of redemption across, across the full spectrum of humanity, but to, to come to something and say, I want to, I want to illuminate the light that exists within this. I want, I want to be an illumination of what is good and intentional and set things right. Redemption is, I think there's, there's the spectrum that's created of um, deep suffering um, and resulting in a positive is somehow the redemption story. And I, I struggled with that because, uh, because I don't know if I, if I want to believe it's applicable only in a space of pain to positive. Um, but I, in what you're describing, I think that's exactly what it's coming to, right? Is that there is this there was good and then there was suffering and now you're trying to, to bring it back to its original intention and um, I guess rid it of all of the convolution that's occurred. I think that's interesting that that sort of trajectory of, okay, redemption is leading to this positive. I think where my, where the book kind of ends, it is not like a positive. It is, it's a acknowledgement of we're still in this cycle. Like, it, it, and, and I'm acknowledging that this, this will probably continue. There will be like these cycles of distrust, um, misunderstanding. Um, and I think that that's a really great question. Cause I think hopefully, you know, we want when we're, redeeming something we want it to be better on on that second third whatever try um but i think being able to acknowledge that we're gonna have to be doing this redemption thing again and again and again maybe like forever yeah um and that is part of the commitment we make to one another um if we are talking about wanting to be in community with each other like redemption Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but you are speaking directly to the first two conversations, as Jen mentioned, um, that we had on Revenge and Redemption. So I talked about revenge is revolution. And, you know, Jen described it almost as like our collective questioning. And then with the redemption, um, it is a continuous thing. You know, you don't just reach some level of redemption. It's this continuous practice. And so it's, you know, they're both two sides of the same coin, right? It's like, you know, we can look at revenge as this negative thing and we can look at redemption as this positive thing, but, but I, it's, it is a cyclical motion. These cycles are still going to continue, right? There's going to be cycle of revenge and redemption and revolution and change and renewal and growth. And you know what I mean? It's like, it's part mm-hmm. of like this weird game we're stuck in a- as life, you know, but 
yeah, you just spoke directly to what we've already been talking about. So like you really highlighted that, which, you know, these are things as I've never like, um, actively thought about before. Right. Especially like in terms of my own work, you know, it's like, you know, to me, redemption was always like kind of like this religious, uh, notion or something. And I didn't grow up with religion. So it's like, I didn't think redemption played like a role in my, in my life, you know, and revenge is like a very easiest, easy thing on the surface to attach to. Right. But like, as we start to dig deeper, we're just realizing, you know, the, the, the breadth of all of it. Yeah. That, that was great. Cause I think, um, when I think of revenge, I think of, I'm trying to hurt you back. Like, so I think it's, and, and because I think of it like that, I definitely want to separate it from like um, uprising or if you call them riots, because I think maybe, you know, in that initial like moment, that anger, it's, it is a, you know, an expression of grief. Um, I want to say more than um, because some, there's something about and I think this is making me like challenge like, you know, how I see revenge and like trying to see it beyond its stereotypical um, connotation there. But I feel like revenge, when you do an act of revenge, it's, it's kind of like. A, like a, it's about me, like I'm hurt. So you're going to hurt too. Um, But I think when you talk about revolution and and things like that, it's more of an us. And I think that beyond just kind of like the the physical acts that happen in an uprising, there's also a lot of organizing. There's a lot of behind the scenes planning and thought and, um, and, and work that kind of goes into, into the decisions that we make to to seek that redemption or to to seek the justice um i'm just talking in a circle here but it's it's definitely making me think about revenge you're right on track you're right on track because that that's the problem right like what well, the more we talked about revenge and redemption as separate entities the more they became intertwined because the the notion of revenge Um, We kept breaking it down, just like, what is justice? Are we striking balance with revenge? Is that what we're really seeking? And how is redemption any different? You know, are these are these the same thing with different intentions? Are they personal versus collective? Um, Specifically with redemption, it's the bringing of balance is, is a journey. And so, and I, I really like what you said about how we're going to keep re- You believe that we're going to keep revisiting this because I absolutely believe that too. Um, I don't think there's one single act of redemption that can set everything right for all people. So redemption feels very personal suddenly in a way that I, I never viewed redemption as personal. I reviewed redemption as a collective effort. Like we're going to redeem these actions of injustice as a people and revenge felt very like, I'm going to get mine. And it's like, Oh, I think these are interchangeable. I think that these are, they're all actions. They're all journey. And, um, they, they are in continuous process. So you, I mean, you're, we should have just had you on the first two episodes. (laughs) It's been a, a long, one long continuous like conversation. Like since we started with the revenge episode into redemption into you, it's like it, we're still having the same conversation, which I love. And it's like 
redemption does look different for all of us, um, for a black woman, for a queer woman, for whatever I am now, as a, as a white woman, as a hairy woman. Um, but going kind of back to the very first poem about the like white supremacy, about the colonization, about uh, capitalism, it's like, you know, this is the conjunction or the connection that that is holding this whole revenge and redemption thing together in all of our worlds. Um, and I also wanted to talk about the importance of who's defining revenge and redemption, because I think what's triggering me about revenge is the way that when revenge is used in white supremacy's mouth, it's, you know, oh, they're burning our stuff down because they want us, they want us to suffer or the world's becoming, you know, less white, you know, like that, you know, that's that whole fear that's going around and, and it's seen as like a revenge or a, um, some sort of desire that black people have to punish white people um, to kind of, and I think that fear is, is just because y'all know y'all did wrong. So you're, you're absolutely in your head because yeah. we're not, I don't find that to be the driving motivation for wanting justice, for wanting um, equity and equality. It's not to, in order for us to have those things, you need to suffer or, or be um, killed. Um, I don't think that that is, and I think that that message is what continues to put Black revolution in this space of, oh, it's violence. Oh, it, it's not beneficial. It's not productive. And so I like that we're having this conversation because we're getting to revisit this word and redefine this word and, and, and take away um, the undertones that are used to like harm communities. Right. And that white paranoia, you or you can only think of these things because like you said, you internally know you did wrong. Like, like there was like a a meme floating around on Instagram, um, you know, last summer, um, you know, during all the uprisings and the conflict um, that kicked off after George Floyd's murder. Um, uh, The image kept saying like, you know, you're lucky black people want like equality and not revenge or something like that. And it's like, it's, it's that the white, constant fear like oh we're becoming a less white society oh like they're gonna like you would only think that knowing you did something wrong because from my experience and if like if you read a book and if you you know interact with different communities it's like that's not what's going on and that's not the impetus of of what we are hoping to change for our future I don't think white people would be afraid of the notion of losing power if they were in any way aware that there that there's absolutely no truth to their whiteness. That that's the myth of supremacy, right? That your race makes you somehow elevated above other races. And it's like, that's a myth. So you need to accept that. And you're right. We absolutely are coming for a level playing field. And in the event that a neighborhood gets burned down because we are leveling the playing field, that is the that is the repercussion of agitating and harming and damaging people on such a level that they feel uh, compelled to react. Like this is not an action against individuals. This is an action against systems. And when people personalize the uh, the actions taken within protests, and then they call them riots, it gives them some sort of elevated supremacy above the actions committed. And as someone who has 
actively participated in protests and watched them become more violent. I can tell you directly, I have never been in a protest where um, an action of violence was initiated by a person protesting for their own equality. The actions of violence are initiated by the system, such as tear gassing me, and then you expect us to to back off, but instead we are progressing forward. When we progress forward, even in the face of violence, that is when the language turns from violence to riot. Uh, when white people are present, when it's just people of color present, it's immediately mm-hmm. labeled a riot. You know, they didn't want to call yeah. the January 6th insurrection a riot uh, mm-hmm. because it was predominantly white people. And I'm just watching the way the system keeps patting itself on the back and keeps trying to plug all of its own holes. And it's like, no, we're coming for a dismantling. You can either be on board with that, you can get the fuck out of the way, or you can be a casualty of that. That's your choice. Uh, but it's get out of the way. You know, because it's not going to stop because of because of your, uh, you know, your internal fragility and your resistance. Fuck you. Well, and also this. it's like the 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 language, this is where language comes in, you know, when the narratives get get flipped. Right. Like I always say, let the Philistines plagiarize because they're all, like they're always like stealing slogans from like, you know, from the witch hunts or the whatever. Oh, it's, it's all like, it's no my body. My choice has been right. Yeah. For these fucking anti-vaxxers. And it's like, exactly. What about, what about yeah. my body? My choice when I, uh, you know, did not want to experience any sort of pregnancy. Like, how dare you? So they, it's they like will, not only snatch it all up. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. like the violence enacted against the bodies, but it's like this, um, you know, violence of language, right? And that's something I'm interrogating right now, too, in my work. And it's like, wh- you know, how does poetry fit into this, right? And and how are we kind of like um, rebuking this or like, you know what I mean? Like we're challenging as we're talking in our poems, as we're having these discussions, as we're trying to challenge these systems, as we're trying to um, shed light um, on these past experiences and that are actually still current and present experiences that are still happening. You know what I mean? It's like as we redefine uh, these words, revenge and redemption, and as language is just continuously changing, you know, it's like, like, what is our role? Like, what are we doing? Like, you know what I mean? Like, what? Ah, that is like, that's the big question, right? Like, what are we doing? Like, as as poets and writers, um, I can speak for, um, for me, like this, what I loved most about writing about this topic was that it took a lot of research for me. So before, Latasha Harlins was just you know, a black girl who was killed. I mean, I wasn't even born yet when this happened. And so I was interested in that as well, like that passed down narrative, um, sort of like a cautionary tale of like, what can happen if you're a black person existing in this space and someone accuses you of stealing or or doing something wrong. Um, and so I was interested in how that sort of narrative is given to children. Like how, how, how is someone talking to their child about Trayvon Martin when it's time to, to talk, if that's your story that you want to go to as an example, like how are these narratives being used, um, for the next generation? Um, how are we kind of getting access to them and what are, what are they doing, um, as we enter the world as black people? Um, so I think, 
if I'm talking about like, can, like, what are we doing? Like with, with this language? I mean, for me, I was really trying to think about the impact those stories have. Um, and I just kind of, I think it, the, the project started with, a, with questions. So I'm like, okay, like, why is there this tension between a lot of black and Asian American communities? Where does this come from? You know, what in history have we done to come together? So just like, I, I, I like to think when I'm writing, I'm trying to also educate myself. And then by, by doing that, I'm hoping others can come in and, and kind of follow me on this journey of learning this thing. And so the, the, to me, I kind of, part of going back to having no titles, it's, it's kind of like knowledge comes to you. It's not linear. Like I'll learn something here. I'll learn something from this source. So like I'll think through it this way. And so just this process of coming to understand something so that I can give it to the world so that they may understand it. So I think like with this particular project, that's what was most important to me. Like, coming to know this subject and hopefully allowing someone else to step in and, and know something from the subject. And then me being able to point to like the sources that helped me like to, to discover these things to see this research. Um, and I think, I guess if you had to put that in a category of, um, of, of what that is, I guess that's awareness, but I, I want to say it's more than just that. Cause I feel like we're so past just awareness Oh, being aware, being aware, um, what are we doing? And I think that's always like a, a constant question. Like what is, what is writing doing? And I, um, I, but I think it, it's, it's doing a lot too. And you never know what it's doing. Cause I think it does something for every, everyone in a different way. So for some people, it might be awareness. They may never have known, um, about these dynamics. Um, but for someone else, it might um, inspire an action. So I think the unlimited sorts of initiations that, that writing can have is what makes it so powerful. Absolutely. I feel like um, from a queer perspective, when I came across books that had queer themes, queer characters, it it expanded the world for me, you know? So for someone to encounter, concentrate, maybe at a young age and read your book, like, you know, 13, 14 years old and being like, not only did I not know this history, but also here is a black woman author who's like me. Like I'm, I'm, I'm particularly just envisioning a young black woman picking this book up and being like, I'm being educated on the history of the experience collective. And I am also being told like, it's possible for me to write a book. It's possible for me to see myself reflected. Therefore I am, I am human. I am valid. I am important. And I'm not the only one. It also starts to make sense. I think of all the microaggressions that you don't quite like, they don't sit right with you, but you don't know what to say about them. Just like, it seems weird that this person is treating me this way, but I don't have a label. I don't have a language for why this is internally destructive for me. And even yeah. the phrasing of microaggression, right? Just to be able yeah. to say like, oh, it's so everywhere. It's on a microscopic level. Yeah. Um, and being able to give people the validation through your experience that can then, I think, further their own journey. It's such an important, impactful piece of work. Yeah, I think about... Um, one of the most impactful books for me was Citizen by Claudia Rankin. I think like 
I, before I came to my MFA program, I read books like in poetry books in undergrad, but I feel like when you're in like a poetry program, you're asked to look at poetry um, as a writer and not just like someone doing an assignment to write a, to write an essay or something on it. And so a citizen as like, it's, again, it's a collage as well. But so part of it are like those, those micro aggressions and those, those narratives that she's telling um, that I feel like was so impactful for me um, being able to see how that can be manifested in poetry. It, it's, you know, in, in those kind of like narrative blocks, very, you know, minimalist to the point, but like so powerful in just seeing that reflected, that that experience reflected back to me. Um, and so, yeah, thinking about being like citizen for someone else, like, or whatever book has really impacted you, like being able to kind of bring that to someone else that's reading you is important. And I think about the illumination of the redemption that we talked about too, because it's like through this visual poem, through concentrate, through your work, like you're illuminating these things, right? And you're also showing the power of, um, the power of language or power of storytelling, the power of illuminating like a certain voice and how, you know, the story is usually rewritten uh, in a negative way. And then like, here we are reconstructing it for, for the use of, of something positive or something powerful. Right. And I, I thought about when you said like, someone mentioned about like, what are we teaching the children? Or if the kids came across it at like a young age and it's like, I know, um, you know, black families are having these conversations, right? Like you hear a lot, um, about, you know, telling you know your young black sons like when you go out into the world or, or whoever you know it's like this is how the cops the are going to treat you the talk right like yeah. we all hear about the talk but like what talk are the white parents having with their kid right you know what I mean so it's like at some point you know black people and black families and the black communities know this right and they have the talk but what talk are we having what talk are the white parents having are are you know are they having that conversation? Like, are they going to buy concentrate? Are they going to show the, um, the visual poem light attire and explain, you know, have that talk with, you know, their sons and daughters about the, the erasure, about the violence, about being forgotten, you know, about these racial tensions. Right. So I think about all the tensions that happen, right. Black, white, um, black and Asian, male and female, um, rich and poor. And when all that kind of started happening, I was like, okay, where's the commonality? Not like how can my experience relate to yours or be compared to it, but it's like, how are we so divided? How are we so angry? How are we so hateful? Right. And so it's like, you know, I start digging into my own past, um, you know, Italian immigrants coming to America. And, you know, I found out about down in New Orleans, it was like this, uh, major lynching of like these 11, um, Sicilian immigrants. Right. And like what that entailed. And I think about, um, you know, when, the Japanese were locked up in the internment camps here. They also were rounding up like Italian Americans. And where do all of our stories like intersect, right? Like there has to be some kind of um, in, in, into the conversation, right? Because people are so like, oh, you know, 
so focused on themselves or like, oh, my family didn't own slaves. So, why? you know what I mean? Like th- th- there's such a blockage. Right. So it's like, where's the entry point into having these conversations or um, how do we expand the empathy? How do we um, redeem the past by bringing bringing it to the present to have these conversations? Right. It's like I, I'm also thinking about how language when you read my manuscript, I ent- I inserted something in there about um, Mononera, the black hand gangsters. And you had made this really important comment back to me about like, what's the importance? Like, what are you as like a white person trying to say? Like, because black and gangsters, is most people will immediately go to thinking about African-Americans. But like what I was talking about was um, it's a extortion ring, an old Italian extortion ring before the mafia. Um, they were called black hand gangsters, mono nera. So I was talking about like this Italian kind of history and kind of like minding my own path. And I realized without context, that was a larger conversation I was trying to have that would have been misconstrued and like had no place there. Right. So it's like that's where I think having these conversations and this is where I think like language is important, but also how language can can be damaging. Yeah, you said a lot of great stuff there. And I think that, you know, black parents have that talk because it's to save their child's life. And white people, white parents don't have to have that talk because they don't have to save their child's life in that way. Um, Will there ever be a point? I don't think there will ever be a point where where it will be... uh, normal, expected, common for white parents to have that talk with their children. And I think that's the nature of white supremacy. Like that's the nature of when you are seen in that dominant space in society. Um, So I can't imagine, and I think that's part of the, the sadness of it. I cannot imagine a world where we no longer have to have that talk. Like, we no longer have to like police ourselves in, in our in our bodies and how we move in this world to save ourselves. Like like that. Um, as much as it it's it's kind of like you know I don't want to like have to tell my kid you have to do this thing look this way, but it is like a a life saving measure for for black parents to do that. Um, yeah, and I think I think you brought up a good point about kind of like when I was reading your manuscript and just learning like the because now I'm really interested in that. Like, I mean, even thinking about like gangster, but also thinking about the word thug. Like, I, I think I recently had to do like some research on thug and like where thug came from um, did not originate in America, but somehow made it over to the West and became a way of criminalizing particularly black people and so now thug is commonly used when white people don't want to say the n-word thug is referenced on that's the cnn word that's the word to say say on fox news when you're trying to say something else um so like that language and and where language comes from and now i'm like okay like gangster there like how did that come here like and I think everything is and that's what makes history so interesting and research so interesting like to see how we intersect as I was doing research for this book I was really interested in okay like how does black history relate to Asian American history like um our experience in this country at what places do they line up 
And so in the book, I have um, several pages that of like a line down the middle of the book. And like, it's a, it's a um, binary of, okay, you know, when like the first slave ship and then the first slip, the first ship where Korean Americans came over or, you know, so like that parallel between our histories throughout time. Um, and I, I think that that seeing something like that is helpful for me because it shows how, you know, we have different experiences. That's facts. But I think we've gone through similar, similar things to where we can come to an understanding with one another as two different communities of color. Well, Vanessa, to your point, too, about, you know, wondering, um, you know, how does the infiltration happen is kind of what I heard you asking um, against that wall, that the separation. And I think that's where the work of the colonists comes in in modern day. You don't want to be identified as if you don't want to be identified as part of the problem, then your work is to be dismantling the wall. You know, your work is to be infiltrating. Our work is to be is, you know, I've read a citizen. It's such an extraordinary piece of work. And uh, that was given to me by a black friend. And she was she very specifically was like, you need to read this. Like, it's not negotiable to me in our friendship. I need you to know this exists. I need you to to be intentional about reading this. I want to make sure that this is in your scope. And that book has gotten passed on from me to other white people. And I think that that's part of the conversation, right? Like to make sure that the, that this isn't treated like contraband or some sort of like, well, it doesn't relate to me, so I'm not going to read it. It's like, no, this is a really important conversation that we need to be having. And also we need to be including the varied perspectives and experiences of all types of people so that you don't continue to elevate in this privileged perspective of like, I'm only reading white people. I'm only reading white history. I only know what we've decided to describe as important over the course of time. I'm, I'm actively bringing in as many voices as I can to make sure that the conversation is more balanced. I don't think that it, I don't think that I'm, I'm particularly doing a revolutionary act as a singular person, but I think that ensuring that our, even our literature is not so whitewashed is actively part of the process. Yeah. And that makes me think of like all of the, uh, all of the acts that are, that are kind of being made to make sure that children aren't taught these things in school, that children don't have access to these books. Um, that right there is an acknowledgement that those books are powerful, that our, that our words are powerful. And so, um, that they're actively trying to make sure that that history and that understanding doesn't make its way um, to children. Cause I think when you're young, like that's, that's the time when you're, you're probably the most open to, to changing your perspective or, you know, cause I feel like sometimes I, I definitely believe adults can change their perspective, but I think sometimes when you are so indoctrinated into who you are, your identity, your whiteness, um, it can be very, very difficult for you to um, kind of transcend that. And so it's very important for like the youth to have access to these things. Absolutely. And I mean, to, to your point, to anybody listening who's white, 
I don't give a shit if it's difficult. I don't care if it's hard. Like I, I've had to do my own work. I was raised in a very white Christian racist environment. I don't think anybody meant to be racist, but they had these ideologies. They had this supremacy. They had this, this, these notions in their head that have been passed down through generations. And it doesn't matter what your intentions are. It matters what plays out in the world. Right. So being able to, to, understand the full scope of the impact and also understand how I participate in that system, whether it is secondary or, you know, very intentionally is, is part of the work, understanding what's not equatable. You know, I, I recognize in my own breakdown of white privilege that, um, I, I struggled in the beginning of this conversation in my life, which there's a beginning point, right? It's not something I've been talking about always. It's something I sought out and, and implemented, um, but no not equating the poverty of my child of my financial experience with um with somehow how i am above or beyond privilege how privilege doesn't apply to me because my notion of privilege came from a, uh, an understanding of financial status rather than an understanding of racial status and that there was a racial status in the first place like that was all work that that i had to do in order to be uh, the person that I want to be within this lifetime. And I don't care if it's hard. I don't care how much it makes you sit and fear and cower and feel uncomfortable and, and insecure and, and question yourself. You should be doing that because other people are having to tell their children how to walk down the street presentably so that they come home alive. That, you know, yeah. that's a pretty stark difference. You had to read a book fucking you're good, you know? Right. How do you feel like those conversations go with like, um, if you're talking to the white people in your life, how is it received? Cause I've always, I've always wondered that. I know that we say have those conversations with white people, white people talk to white people, but like, right. how is that actually received when you do so? I was just thinking that I'm like, what is the white talk? Like, what does this look like? Not only from parent to child, but like from white person to white person, right? Like I can tell you how it goes on my end. I yeah, mean, it truly depends on the person. But in the instance of having conversations with my intimate family members, there is I've experienced uh, multiple levels of resistance. But because I'm close with them, I think they're willing to hear me out. Right. So um, when I challenge, uh, let's say I just challenge the notion that uh, white privilege is real and say to them, like, the way that you're, the reason that you're behaving this way is because of white privilege. And they're like, ugh, that's not real. And I'm like, yes, it is. And let me tell you why. I feel that I'm heard. And then I feel that they are argumentative, that they push back. And it's, I feel like in the position that I'm in, I have to be so informed and so armed with relevant, simple examples of how it plays out. Like, I, I had a conversation with a male um, and I said to him, um, tell me what you, what you think when you're walking down the street and you see a white guy, it's like, what do you mean? And I was like, do you think anything? And he's like, well, I don't know. What is he wearing? What is he, how is he behaving? And I was like, okay, hold. What do you think when you walk, you're walking down the street and you see a black guy and his face went ironically white. And I was like, yeah, do you see? You already have, you don't, I don't have to tell you what this person's wearing, what job they have, how much they love their parents, their children. I don't have to tell you anything about this person. You already have a presumption based on their race. And that is the keyhole of your bullshit. So get in there and clean it out. 
And well, it's that unconscious bias, right? Like when I was it's wor- bringing it to a conscious place so right. that they can start eradicating it. But I get a lot of pushback until I can get to a place where they can see a small sliver of truth that is applicable to them. So I, it's, I mean, it, it comes in all forms. I think some people are more willing to listen than others, but I, I'm also expecting a lot of uh, verbal violence when I have these conversations mm. with people who I know are uncomfortable having them. Um, but I'm going to have these conversations with everybody until I know we are all in agreement that this, there's a problem and you need to be working towards resolving it in any way. Um, I think this is a really good challenge that you just posed to me because it's like, I fortunately, like I didn't have to grow up like unlearning religion. I didn't have like that dogma. I didn't have to like unlearn racism on like a surface level, right? Like I didn't grow up like with a family that had these outward beliefs, right? Like, but obviously I came from a privileged position, like where I wasn't actively thinking about it my whole life. I don't know how to exist without having these conversations and anyone who is my friend or in my life, my parents, especially like I'm constantly challenged and constantly like, I I don't have a lot of small talk. Right. So I'm usually yelling at somebody about capitalism or, or patriarchy or whatever. Like I've had more difficult conversations with my dad understanding like male privilege or patriarchy than I've had to have discussions about race. Right. But it's like, I need to know what my conversation looks like. Like, what, what am I saying? What am I doing? You know, am I so privileged that like, I only have like five people in my life and we all have the same belief. So I don't have to lecture them on their white privilege because like, they're already aware of it. Like, obviously like I'm encountering white people who are fucking clueless because at a corporation that I worked for, they didn't even know what the word unconscious bias meant, let alone me having to try to explain that to them was on a whole other level. It's like, like the awareness for so many people like are just not there at all. And like, and so much less so now that I live here in Kansas city than I had realized before, because I think I had been in some pretty privileged situations about the people and environment that I was in. We were all having these conversations together anyways. So what does that look like for me with people that I'm now surrounded by who are not having these conversations? I think of white women. I think of fucking white women who get mad about being called Karen, even when it's not directed at them. On what planet are you personalizing this? And like, you know, uh, the first thing I saw, it was like um, when Afghanistan just happened, it's like white women, how can I make this about me? You know what I mean? Because like, that's it. Like, I know this is like a meme. I know it's a tweet, but it's very succinct because that's what happens. No matter what happens, it's somehow, but what about me? Oh, but, but I suffered and the suffragettes, well, the suffragettes weren't fighting for, uh, black women's right to vote. And there was someone who mentioned something recently about like white women who are harmed and, you know, they have a lot of violence. Yes. But white women are also, we're also mistresses, mistresses and like responsible for the enslavement of black people. Like you are part of that. You are not separate from that. You know what I mean? As much as you want to hate the male and hate the patriarchy, you are still there. You are still you enslaved people too. And they still do it. I think of the white tears, you know what I mean? That, that goes on now, like in the workplace or just in everyday interaction where uh, a white woman does 
you know, something outlandish. And then she cries to look like the victim, right? Like this is a tactic that is constantly used. It's always been used. So, you know, yeah, that's a challenge to me to get my talking points together. And like, how am I going to like start having these conversations and presenting it, you know, to the white people in my life who just don't have a clue. Yeah. I think that also made me think of uh, situations that I've been in if I'm in a meeting and something happens and I'm um, kind of standing up for myself as a black person, or I'm advocating for something. And then the white ally in the room, quote unquote, after the meeting will then message me and be like, Oh, are you okay? Yeah. That, Ooh, that didn't go like, but was not vocal in that meeting. And so like that kind of like supporting you in the background after the fact Um, I think that's another thing, too. So that conversation that you're having behind closed doors with the the people in your life, but also if if you're kind of wanting to be part of that, that change, it happens on a day to day level. So like when uh, marginalized people are in a public space and they are carrying a lot of weight, like how can you help to take that weight off as well? Um, And so. Yeah, I, I think that it manifests in many in many ways. I think, yeah. I think it's really important when you bring up the ally, and we're we're doing air quotes here when we're saying yeah. the white ally in the room because that silence is violence, as we've heard, right? And mm-hmm. and yes, she may like personally on you know quietly come to you afterwards, but like this is where it goes beyond awareness and into action. Like when we think about like white people needed to put their bodies in front of black bodies at the protest, right? Like this is where action comes in. This is where she stands up and speaks up in the, in the meeting to have your back. This is where, um, I can think about an inst. I, 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 all my instances, I feel like I have to speak up more at work than I do in like my personal life. So, um, I think work is a really relevant place to, to be, to be expanding the conversation as a person who wants to be on, uh, you know, the the right. right side. And I always, I don't have the perfect language for this. I think like organizers and activists probably have the best understanding of, of what solidarity looks like, how to you do it. Um, and so I, I think it, it's a, a, a good thing to consider, but I think those conversations, like Jen, you were saying, it takes patience, it takes strategy, because you kind of got to go in there and you got to know what you're going to say. Because um, sometimes I find myself in conversations about race and I'm just kind of like, I know I'm right. I don't even, but I don't know how to like tell you in a way that you're going to like understand it. And so, yeah, you really have to devote yourself to, to, to knowing how you're going to have that conversation and, and practicing it um, and taking time to really hone that skill. And I, you know, I have, I have my own experience with activism and the evolution of feminism and intersectional feminism. So I feel like I've learned a lot of lessons the hard way, like trying to have good intentions as a white woman, but also recognizing where my good intentions were misinformed because the only people in the room talking were white women. Um, something that became really relevant in the last, uh, I don't know, three years, my awareness of it uh, emerged. So I was showing up to these events where I had been booked as the headliner and people were paying me quietly. They were like, I didn't pay anybody else in the lineup. So like, 
don't, I'm the only one who asked for money. That's A. And B, I didn't pay anybody else in the lineup, so don't let them know you've been paid. Didn't matter what demographic was present. That was just something that I was realizing like, oh, we're all being ripped off, right? Like I, then now I have to leave feeling guilty that I got paid for something I should have gotten paid for. So I started speaking up in that way of being like, if you're here tonight, you should be receiving some money for your participation. And then it further occurred to me that I'm often on stages with other white people. There's, they pick white openers and they often pick queer openers and there's no diversity in the people that are on stage with, with me, before me, after me. So when we had the, there was a women's March a couple of years ago, they, I asked them to send me the lineup of speakers and it was only white people. And I was like, I am not coming to this, participating, advocating for it at all unless this list is at least 50-50. You should absolutely be calling into question the, the racial aspect of this and making sure that all voices are heard. You cannot just put white women up there and keep repeating history. And I do that now in my performances. If there are openers or there are closers, I need to see that lineup ahead of time. And that's an, I think that's another way I can have that conversation uh, with somebody I don't know and make it relevant to, to the experience we're having together. There yeah. should be, uh, there should be people of color in this space. And if there are not, you're doing something wrong and I don't want to be there. Right. And I think that's a great way to have the conversation, like with these organizers, with these bookers, with these, you know, and for white people recognizing like where your voice is not needed and saying, my voice does not need to be heard, but here are some voices that new, do need to be heard and you contact and you book these people. I think you're bringing up a good point because um, it being on what we are calling like the right side or, or being an advocate, it, it requires you sometimes to lose opportunities. It requires you to step down. And so I think when people realize that, when they realize they can't just, you know, text you and say, oh, I'm listening or, oh, you know, and that it requires them to give up power. That's when that stops. And so, yeah, I think that that ultimately becomes the the problem. Do we have enough people who are willing to step down? Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Confessing Animals. If you want to get access to the full interview with Courtney Faye Taylor, please join us over at Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Confessing Animals podcast. And please check out Courtney Faye Taylor and support her work.